From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, April 20th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Protesters in Bahrain demand an end to the kingdom's crackdown on dissent, and they want to cancel a glitzy car race this weekend. People are going to be popping champagne bottles and celebrating, having parties and concerts. The rest of the island is suffocating from tear gas. Also, a fighter in Syria sees no sign of a UN-backed ceasefire. We're the United Nations. What we have from an initiative? Nothing. Nothing. Just killing. And later, union trouble for immigrants in Vegas. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontline's Money, Power, and Wall Street, the origins of the financial crisis, and the drama on Wall Street and in Washington to contain the meltdown and save the economy. Tuesday, April 24th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets of Bahrain today. They demand the cancellation of the Bahrain Formula One Grand Prix, which is scheduled for Sunday. Now, normally the car race is a glamorous showcase for the small Arab kingdom, but it's been overshadowed by more than a year of political turmoil there. Anti-government protests and a violent crackdown by the authorities forced the cancellation of last April's Bahrain Grand Prix. This year, it seems the race will take place despite the protests. Today, the king called the Grand Prix a force for good. Alaa Shahabi is a writer and activist in Bahrain. The Bahraini royal family, she says, has a lot at stake in the race. They own all the biggest industries in the country that have vested interest in the Formula One. And so because of that involvement in this sport, it's become a flashpoint, a leverage point to try and pressure them for change. And so when it was cancelled last year, we thought that would be a strong sign and a strong message to the government that the global public opinion is that this regime is not worthy to host such a prestigious event. And I think that's what pressured the government to introduce at least minor cosmetic reforms, and we hope that they continue to do so. We are not against the Formula One support per se. Many people are Formula One fans in the country, and um, to have solved the conflict would have allowed the sport to go ahead in a joyous atmosphere in which everyone in the country can enjoy the sport in an environment where people are going to be popping champagne bottles and celebrating having live parties and concerts the rest of the island is suffocating from tear gas trying to treat its injured sons and daughters at home can you describe some of the changes that have taken place how your life for instance has changed over the past year since the government has made some concessions to pro-democracy activists My husband was kidnapped from his office car park, and I never saw him for two months until he appeared in a military court. What was he accused of? Participating in an illegal assembly, even though he hadn't ever been to a protest before. He was completely apolitical. So to see people that were not even involved in the protest movement, but punished severely for having any connection to the opposition, 
um, because he belonged to Shia family or he was connected to the opposition through me, the government took revenge on him. And what I've seen happen, there's not a household where a member hasn't lost their job, who hasn't had a relative who's in prison or is related to someone who has been killed. So this makes the struggle very personal. And we're so interlinked. We're such a small, tiny island, such a small community that the collective feeling is shared and unifying. Just one more question for you. If the Formula One Grand Prix goes well this weekend, will that hurt your cause and your calls for reform of the government in Bahrain? I think if the Formula One goes through, that just shows really the insistence of the organizers to forego and to ignore the plight of the people. But the fact that we've received such strong support and solidarity from the international community and from motorsport fans to say, you know, this is wrong, is enough for us to sustain the struggle to say, look, you know, our plight against oppression still continues and it's a legitimate one. Thank you, uh, Alice Shahabi, who's a writer and activist in Bahrain. Uh, we will make a link to your website, Bahrainwatch at theworld.org. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. In Syria, widespread protests were reported today. Opposition activists there say government troops opened fire on protesters, killing several in cities around the country. United Nations officials are pressuring the Syrian government to respect the UN-backed ceasefire it agreed to earlier, but the violations continue. The BBC's Ian Panel sent this report after visiting the town of Taftanaz in Syria's Idlib province. On April the 1st, Syria agreed to Kofi Annan's peace plan. The world was told that the government had given assurances. It had moved no further into populated areas. But in a pattern of broken promises, it then unleashed a whirlwind of destruction and death just two days later when the soldiers rolled into the town of Taftanaz. I woke up in the morning on the 3rd of April and heard the sound of explosions and shooting. I called my friends and they told me that they are shelling and shooting in the town, and so I started filming. The tanks entered the town at 7.30 in the morning. Then in the afternoon, the armored vehicles drove in and the soldiers entered. I've just walked into the main mosque in Taftanaz and it's a scene of incredible devastation. You can see a shell, a tank round possibly has gone through one of the main side walls and you can see shrapnel marks embedded deep into the walls. This is also where 57 people killed inside Taftanaz were brought to be identified and eventually laid to rest. Can you, can you just show us on, on his head where he was hit? We met the man they call the living martyr in Taftanaz. Abu Azaz says he was rounded up, his hands were bound, he was made to face a wall and then he was shot three times in the head and left for dead. His scars are clearly visible and his jaw droops from where it was smashed. Miraculously, the bullets went through his cheek and although a very sick man, he is alive. There were four of us, including two old men. They said my crime was that I didn't tell them there was a makeshift hospital next to my house. Then they shot all of us. Men like Abu Azaz take the risk to speak out because they hope it'll make a difference. 
that at some point the world will take notice. Amin is a fighter with the Free Syrian Army. He took me round what remains of his home after it was set alight by the troops. We have finished the, 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 the cleaning of my house inside and you can see the outside what happened here. Just to describe the scene, every single wall and ceiling in this uh, apartment are blackened from the smoke. Uh, there is nothing left. The heat was obviously so intense that the floor has broken um, and there's just a skeletal metal bed frame left uh, from his bed. We are homeless. Where the United Nations? What, what the Anan give, give us? Nothing, just killing. Fifty-seven people are thought to have died here in just two days. Fighters and civilians, men and women, young and old. They're buried in two mass graves in the town's cemeteries. We met one young man who was paying his respects to his brother, one of two siblings to be killed in the last year. Why did they attack Taftanas? Because we want freedom. I wonder myself, because we want freedom. Is this the end of the revolution? No, no. We still do demonstrate until the last one of us. The whole world know that, but no one support us except Allah. This was an attempt to crush the opposition that not only failed to dim the call for change, it's made the prospects for peace even more remote. Positions have hardened, and in truth, there's no common ground with the government. And although the violence has abated, attacks on places like Taftanaz are continuing, one week after the ceasefire was supposed to take effect. The BBC's Ian Panel reporting on the situation in Syria's Idlib province. The crisis in Syria is having a big impact on neighboring Turkey. Thousands of refugees have sought shelter there. Cross-border trade between the two countries was booming just a year ago. Now it's all but stopped. The city of Gaziantep in southern Turkey once thrived on Syrian tourism, but not now, as Matthew Brunwasser reports. A male peacock at the Gaziantep Zoo calls out to attract attention. Much like the Gaziantep Zoo once attracted busloads of Syrian visitors with its cheerful animal exhibits and enormous lush green park. Saad Chawana is a Syrian student in Gaziantep who used to lead Syrian tourists here. He says the zoo was one of the Syrians' favorite places to visit in this industrial boomtown near the Syrian border. But since the fighting escalated in Syria, the tourist trade has dried up and he had to find other work. Most of Syria has no military activity, he says, but the chaos makes international travel practically impossible. There's absolutely no security in Syria. Plus, the Turkish lira is very expensive for Syrians. There are economic problems, political problems, and of course security problems. In Syria, they don't even leave the house after 6 o'clock in the evening. At one of the zoo's snack bars, owner Gushen Ozun says the most popular day was Friday, the Islamic weekend. On Fridays, tour groups came all the time. There were 5 to 20 buses per day. And now, unfortunately, hardly even one car ever comes in a day. The recent good times were in fact a departure from a long history of hostility between Turkey and Syria. Until the 1990s, there were bitter disputes over water and territory. Jonathan Lavak is from the Tesev think tank in Istanbul. What happened during the 2000s was there was great rapprochement. 
Syria refuted its rights to claims on the Turkish territory. They entered into free trade agreements. Visa regimes were brought down. Trade went up by threefold over a decade. And tourism went up by about sevenfold. So seven times as many Syrians were coming from Syria to Turkey by 2010. Just last spring, Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan called Syrian President Bashar al-Assad a good friend. But relations soured again as the Syrian government used ever more brutal means to crush the uprising. In recent months, Erdogan has called on the Syrian president to leave power. Turkey has imposed economic sanctions and told its citizens to evacuate. At a Gaziantep taxi company that used to shuttle people back and forth across the border, owner Nevres Urkmez says his drivers once made 300 trips per day. Now, nearly none. He has only a few Syrian drivers left. The Turkish drivers wouldn't accept the risk. Our main concern is being able to provide for our children. We want the bleeding there to stop. Sankol Park is the biggest and shishiest shopping mall in this ambitious city. Syrians, among others, love shopping here. Many of the merchants used to cater to them, posting Arabic-language signs. At the Tasty Corn Stand, a man named Tariq says the Syrians loved his corn. And because of the crisis, he's lost most of his business. 80%. For example, look at these chestnuts. The Syrians love them, but since they stopped coming, they obviously can't buy them from me anymore. Back in the old days, Tariq says Sankul Park was the first place in town the buses from Syria would stop. This is a beautiful new shopping mall. The lower and middle classes have been coming to Gaziantep for a long time. But after they built this mall, the rich people started coming here too. Locals hope that Gaziantep's export-driven economy is diversified enough to withstand the shock of losing Syria. Not only has Turkey's trade with its southern neighbor been frozen, but also its trade with other Arab countries, which once went through Syria. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Gaziantep, Turkey. You can see the empty zoo in Gaziantep and the city's sparsely populated mall. We've got a slideshow. It's at theworld.org. Two big names in world music pair up for the first time. The result, coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Employee unions have been under attack in recent years. There were the very public union fights in Wisconsin and Ohio. In Michigan, auto workers have struggled to preserve their benefits. And there's also a union fight brewing in Las Vegas. Most casino workers on the Vegas Strip are part of a union, but there are also non-union casino workers. Many of them are immigrants, and some of them are saying that they want to be part of a union, too. That has sparked a labor battle on the Strip as the world's Jason Margolis reports. People have long come to Las Vegas to try and make it big at the poker or blackjack table. Vegas has also been a beacon for many immigrants. It's a place where you can build a middle-class life without much formal education and limited English. Many who have built that life say being part of a union was a key to entry. Hilary Rona came here from Poland in 1983. My house is paid, my car is paid. 
I can afford to have my daughter right now in the second year in pharmacy school, you know, which is private college, which most of my counterparts who are non-union have not even have what I have. Ovidio Aquino from Guatemala has one of those non-union jobs. He worked as a cook for 22 years for station casinos. Two years ago, he started organizing his co-workers to join a union. He says his bosses began harassing him. One day, he was preparing fried rice. This recipe I've been doing for years in the same way. But one time, yes, the chef, he said he doesn't like it, and that's why the reason they gave it to me to fire. He says before he was fired, he never had any problems at work. Because if I've been like in trouble before, why they don't fire me before? If I've been working for 22 years, because I'm being a good worker. Others tell similar stories. Employees showing up to work wearing union buttons, then being fired for being three minutes late. Aquino wants to join the culinary union, Local 226. They represent workers in casinos associated with Caesars and MGM. Giocondo Aguello Klein is the union president. We represent 55,000 people. You know, it's the bus persons, the cooks, the cocktail waiters, bartenders, uh, food servers. As well as people who clean hotel rooms and wash the sheets. 42% of the union members in Las Vegas are Hispanic. Many are immigrants. Arguello Klein herself is originally from Nicaragua. She came to the U.S. and worked as a chambermaid. I came in 1979 and living in, in Miami, you know, I don't have no union at all. I don't have no benefits and no, no good wages and anything. I moved to Las Vegas. I got the knowledge here it was uh, in a strong uh, union and it was a huge, incredible difference, you know, for me. I could uh, feel secure my family will be taken care She wants non-union casino workers to have that same security, along with pensions, better wages, and annual raises. Joining a union also provides non-economic benefits for immigrants, says Ruth Milkman. She's a sociologist and labor expert at the City University of New York. Historically, labor unions have been a a kind of avenue of assimilation into the mainstream of American society. So they open up a lot of doors to civic participation of various kinds, anything from registering to vote, which is the simplest form of that, but also perhaps getting more involved in the political process in a more intense way. She says many unions also help new American arrivals with community issues, like lobbying for improved housing or schools. Unions also represent workers when labor laws are violated. In Vegas, Station Casinos, again, that's the non-union casino group, was recently found guilty on 87 counts of labor law infractions. Nearly 80 percent of those violations involved Hispanic workers. The culinary union took out a full-page ad in Billboard magazine that read, Station Casinos Fired Latinos. Absolutely incredibly false information by the culinary union. They are all technical violations. None of them are discrimination. Lori Nelson directs corporate communications for Station Casinos. Nelson says the local culinary union has engaged in a campaign of distortions to smear the company's good name. She says the company offers competitive wages and benefits. It assists employees in the citizenship process and offers free access to English as a second language software. Nelson asks, if this weren't an attractive place to work, How could the company grow to 13,000 employees? Fortune magazine has 
named our company one of the 100 best companies to work for for four years in a row. And there's never been a gaming company and there has never been a culinary union represented property that has ever received that kind of recognition before. Nelson also takes offense at the union's tactics. The union has contacted convention organizers, concert performers, and people planning weddings, recommending they take their business elsewhere. Station casinos hit back with advertisements like this. Who would harass a bride planning her wedding? Trying to stop her wedding? The bosses of the culinary union. Harassing brides that chose a hotel that bosses don't like. The recurring theme running throughout several advertisements is the same. The union is trying to swell its own ranks at the expense of the local Vegas economy. Both the union and station casinos seem hunkered down for a long fight. The union needs 50 percent of the employees to vote to join their ranks. Sociologist Ruth Milkman says generally it's an uphill battle. Workers are afraid of their bosses. They might fire somebody who they have identified as an activist or an organizer, which is illegal, but it happens every day. People get scared. They don't want to lose their job. They've seen somebody else just get fired for supporting the union right or whatever. When stories circulate, like the union organizer from Guatemala who says he was fired for making rice incorrectly, the story can have a dual effect. It can galvanize people to action or persuade workers to just keep their heads down. And Station Casinos argues if workers are keeping their heads down, it's for another reason, because they're satisfied employees. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Las Vegas. For today's GeoQuiz, just put your lips together and blow. We're looking today for the name of a small town in North Carolina. It's on the banks of the Tar River. It's where some of the world's most passionate whistlers have gathered for the International Whistling Convention. Me. Whistlers young and old will be judged on resonance, intonation, and stage presence. The host town in North Carolina was founded back in the 1770s. It was named in honor of the French king at the time, who threw his support behind America in the revolution. That was King Louis XVI. Big hint there. If you know the answer, you are in good company with our texting game winners, who answered earlier in the day today, Ivan in Claremont, Florida, Kenny in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Ashley in San Luis Obispo, California. Feel free to join in next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. In the meantime, hang in there for the answer a little bit later in the program. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, concerns that all-out war could break out between Sudan and South Sudan. A former U.S. envoy to Sudan says the blame rests with President Omar al-Bashir in the north. No one's screaming at, at Bashir for bombing another sovereign state. That's a violation of international law. It's an act of war to bomb another country. And that's what he's doing. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The world's newest country, South Sudan, is locked in a border dispute with its northern neighbor, Sudan. Tensions have been rising since the South's independence. That came last July. But this week, there was intense fighting over a disputed oil-rich region called Hejlij. Officials in the South said it was being used by the North to launch attacks across the border. They said that the North's president, Omar al-Bashir, was the aggressor. So South Sudan invaded. It was condemned internationally for doing so, and today it announced its withdrawal. But both sides remain on edge. Andrew Natsios is a former U.S. special envoy to Sudan. He's now a professor at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He says the South is America's ally and deserves protection from the U.S. There are vast mineral resources, not just oil in the South. And the Southerners would prefer American firms that are not there now to be there. The best thing for us to do now is to make clear that military options are not acceptable by either the North or the South. And one of the things that the Southerners will do is if we say we will protect you from northern invasion, that will empower the more moderate forces in the south against any more military incursions in the north. He will also tell Bashir and his generals, you cannot continue to try to intimidate the south militarily. It's not acceptable. If the point is that military options are not acceptable in Sudan, what you're talking about is the U.S. having the potential of acting militarily by sending in uh, air forces. Why would that be in U.S. interest to do that? Because we have interests in Egypt, Israel, uh, Ethiopia, large interests in Kenya, and we have interests in southern Sudan too that are not simply humanitarian. Too many people see this as a humanitarian issue. It, right now, it's, it's between, there are two sovereign states here. So you think now the only option is, uh, is air cover, providing air cover? Uh, I do. I, it's going to stabilize the situation. I don't see other options available. I've been trying to find, because my first choice is a diplomatic solution to this. But we're at the point now where the generals are calling the shots, and those generals are not interested in diplomacy. They're the ones that walked out of the talks, not the southern Sudanese. You're saying the, southern, the, the northern generals from Sudan. The are, northern are generals right walked it, out of the talks two weeks ago, which is what led to this crisis. It's also a tough climate in the United States to be calling for more U.S. military presence anywhere right now. Uh, I understand that. But we have a lot invested in southern Sudan. We do not want a destabilization of northeast Africa, which is what's going to happen if a conventional war starts. Why not rely, for instance, on diplomatic efforts made by Ethiopian leaders, by other leaders? I think we should try. If anybody can succeed right now, it's Meli Sanawi, the prime minister of Ethiopia. And I think we should support his efforts. Princeton Lyman, our special envoy, my successor, is very capable, and I have great uh, regard for him. I'm not sure he's been given the tools by Washington to do what he needs to do. But we should let Mellis go ahead with this. If Mellis can arrange a ceasefire and moving everybody back to the the table, that would work. What are you but, saying that the tool, uh, Mellis of Ethiopia, what are you saying the tools would be that the uh, U.S. A, a security would guarantee. Does the United States have a tool to the extent that it has influence in the International Criminal Court? Does it have a tool in trying to get Omar al-Bashir arrested, apprehended, since he has been indicted by the ICC and he remains a free man? Well, one, I thought the indictment was a very bad idea because Bashir was thinking of retiring in 2006 and not running for re-election. And once that indictment took place, he basically privately told people he will never retire because he has no intention of ever going on trial. Now, I'm not debating whether or not they're guilty. I think they are guilty. 
But the question is whether we want justice or we want peace. And I frankly think right now we should be focused on peace as the first requirement. I wonder if if we're letting South Sudan, this now independent country, off the hook here. There is fault on both sides, is there not? There is fault on both sides, but it is not equal. No one's screaming at, at Bashir for bombing another sovereign state. That's a violation of international law. It's an act of war to bomb another country. And that's what he's doing. Andrew Natsios is a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and the author of a new book entitled Sudan, South Sudan, and Darfur, What Everyone Needs to Know. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Mali's ousted president has sought refuge in neighboring Senegal. He was reportedly worried about his safety in Mali one month after he was forced to give up power by a military coup. This news comes on the day that Mali's new interim prime minister addressed the nation for the first time. Sheikh Modibo Diara is a U.S. citizen and a former interplanetary navigator at NASA. Marine Olaviesi reports from Bamako. Archive images of Mars Pathfinder splashed all over state TV the night of Modi Diara's nomination as the country's interim prime minister. Diara operated the American spacecraft that landed on Mars in 1997. The TV report goes from a picture of his modest school in Mali's countryside to one of NASA's central command. The report called it a success story for a scientist schooled and raised like any other kid on the block who found himself at the head of a mission of utmost complexity. The anchor is speaking about Diara's Mars mission, but it could just as well apply to the challenges he now faces as Mali's prime minister. In Bamako, Diara and the interim president, Diakunda Traoré, are expected to restore constitutional order after last month's coup and rein in the coup leaders. Earlier this week, protests broke out over the arrest of 22 political and military leaders. Among those rounded up, the former prime minister, the ex-defense minister, and several other key allies of the ousted president Amadou Toumani Touré. Alchemist from the anti-coup coalition says this campaign of arrest and detention had no judicial ground. We live in a state of law, and that requires due process. People can't be rounded up at two in the morning in their homes. If we need to arrest them, the president should give law enforcement a mandate to do so. The ex-junta says they suspected the 22 of plotting a counter-coup, but others saw the arrest as a show of force by coup leaders intent on proving they still have the upper hand despite handing over power to civilians. The 22 men were released late last night, yet many say it's still hard to tell who's in charge right now. Moussa Traoré, another man at the protest, says Mali right now is divided into three states, the self-proclaimed Azawad state in the north, the constitutional republic led by the interim president, and what he calls the coup d'état state. Three weeks ago, Tuareg rebels aided by Islamic groups took control of the northern towns of Gao, Kidal and Timbuktu and declared the independent state of North Mali. In his first address to the nation broadcast today, Diara said the country is facing the most dramatic episode of its modern history and that Mali won't give up an inch of its territory. Reacting to the news of Diara's nomination, youth activist Adan Guitté says Malians hope his international connections will help draw more attention from the international community on the unfolding crisis and maybe muster support.
but Western help could hinder rather than facilitate negotiations with some of the rebels. The Islamist group Ansar Din said they're open to talks with Bamako, but only on one condition. No Western state or NGO should interfere in the negotiations or play a role in the humanitarian corridor soon to be set up that would channel food and medical assistance to North Mali. For The World, I'm Marine Olivesi in Bamako, Mali. Giants are roaming the streets of Liverpool, England. Well, giant puppets, anyway. They and their handlers from the French street theatre company Royal Deluxe are there for a three-day spectacle that's called Sea Odyssey, the Giant Spectacular. Judith Feather is the head of events for Liverpool City Council. Judith, how giant are these puppets? Well, we have three. They're marionettes, and the little girl giant, at her tallest, is nearly 30 foot high. She's made of poplar and lime and wood and steel. But her uncle is a massive 50 feet high. 50 feet. And the third? (laughs) (laughs) And we have a dog. We have Cholo. Cholo is the playful companion of the little girl giant. And he's nine foot tall. Oh, he's only nine foot tall. All right. He's the shrimp in the the group. Um, He's the shrimp. So what is Sea Odyssey? Sea Odyssey, it's a story about a little girl who wrote a letter to her father, who was a steward on the Titanic. And as you know, Titanic sank 100 years ago last weekend. And the little girl lived in Liverpool and she wrote a letter to her father. He never actually received it. And the letter came back here. It was returned to the family and the family presented it to the Maritime Museum. This is all true? I mean, except for the puppet part? The letter is true. The letter is here. It's on display in our Maritime Museum. And that's the inspiration for Sea Odyssey. Well, Sea Odyssey, which includes these puppets or or marionettes, and I guess those who are behind the puppets, maybe literally, don't like to call them puppets or marionettes because they are alive, so they say. That's exactly right. The Royal Deluxe Company is made up of actors and aerialists and inventors and poets and engineers, and so they don't allow anybody to see the giants in rehearsal. How do they operate, for instance, like the 30-foot little girl? Yeah, she has 22 people, Lilliputians we call them, and they operate her. She can operate at a speed of about 2.5 kilometres an hour, but her hair is, is made of horse hair, and her eyes are made from street lamps, and her eyelashes from broom hair. So she's very, very alive. They never allow people to see them not working, not operating, which I think is a great thing. You're not allowed to film them or photograph them in their rehearsal space, which was at a secret location here in Liverpool. So today is the first day that people got to see them walking around the streets. The the uncle, he has 30 Lilliputians, all resplendent in red velvet, who make him work. Uh, How do people react when this group goes down the street? Well, the people of Liverpool, particularly the children this morning in Stanley Park, when the little girl giant was waking up, because these giants breathe, you can hear them breathing. They were shouting, wake up, wake up, and it was, it was just wonderful to see them. The young people also, they love the dog. Cholo is, um, is a very playful, naughty dog, and he will go up to the audience and lick them. So it's, uh, it's very interactive. Who controls the tongue? It's remote controlled. So in front of them is somebody with a remote control and they walk with it tied around their neck and they operate them. So the public don't notice them because they are so captivated by the giants themselves. It's the best street theatre in the world. Judith Feather of the Liverpool City Council. Have fun this weekend. Nice to talk to you, Lisa. 
Without even craning your neck, you can see the 30-foot-tall little girl giant who's been strolling around Liverpool. We've got videos at theworld.org. An international whistler's convention is underway in the place we asked about in our GeoQuiz today, and the answer is Lewisburg, North Carolina. Whistlers from far and wide have gathered there. Meet a couple of them. Hello, my name is Yuki Takeda. I'm from Tokyo, Japan, and I just turned 20 this January. I just love to whistle, and I think it's a great musical instrument that has so big a potential, you know, maybe equal or even bigger than any other musical instruments. And I love to perform classical, jazz, folk, any kind of music. It's a really big thing in Japan right now. Yeah. That was a very traditional Japanese piece called Sakura, meaning cherry blossoms. The great part about this competition is the stimulus that I get and the motivation. Listening to all the other whistlers doing different techniques, double tones, whistling two tones at the same time, I'm still working on that. I can't do that. I definitely picked up this trill technique like this. Yeah. I'm actually going to do a song I did two years ago in the same competition in China called Chardash by Monty. Good day. My name is Molly Lewis, and I am from Australia, a small town called Mullumbimby. It's in the north coast of New South Wales. Okay, um, this is an excerpt from O Mio Babino Caro, which I'm going to perform today. I do it for fun. I whistle for fun all the time. So, you know, when I'm walking to class or walking along the street, I whistle just whenever I want to, which I think is a great thing about whistling. You can't really do that with a guitar. So it's nice to always have that instrument with me. All right. um, This is Waltzing Matilda, and this is for my Australian whistlers. I guess I just want to say that whistling, it's great to have an event like this, to get whistling out there kind of as an art form and an instrument because it always feels good to whistle. I totally agree with Molly. Being a whistler is, you know, you can make a lot more friends than when you didn't have that talent. So It's a great conversation starter. Yeah. (laughs) For the world, this is Molly Lewis from Mullumbimby, Australia. And Yuki Takeda from Tokyo, Japan. And we're both in Lewisburg, North North Carolina. Carolina. 
We've never whistled together. <laughs> we actually only just met. But we could try something. Yeah. Melody. What would you like? What can? Do you know "Yesterday" by the Beatles? Oh yeah. Can you take the melody? This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Idan Raquel is a well-known musician from Israel. He plays piano. Vua Fakature is a well-known musician from Mali. He plays guitar. They didn't know each other, though, until a chance encounter in 2008, and now they've released an album called The Toure Raquel Collective, The Tel Aviv Session. This is a track called Bamba. Idan Rachel owes his partnership with Vieux Fakature to an airport layover. Vieux and I met a connecting flight in Germany. He was with his band and I was with my band. We were both in different gates, but I saw him uh, just uh, passing by and I asked him maybe if I, I can uh, join his band uh, for a while just to play keyboards for him, just to, you know, to make some change. Yeah, just, but no money, huh? <laughs> just come play and I don't give nothing, you know. <laughs> And then uh, after playing with him in Spain, uh, he came uh, to play uh, in Tel Aviv. It was an unforgettable night. And then we just had a jam session, beautiful three hours. Uh, I thought it, it sounds for me like an uncut, beautiful diamond. And uh, that's it. That's what became the Tel Aviv session. That, that brings up a lot of questions. But you know what? I think we should hear the song Experience. And I would love for you guys to talk it through with us, maybe the experience right. of playing and recording it. So the song starts with the piano playing by muting the, the strings of the piano, kind of plucking the, the strings inside a grand piano, which gives it, uh, its, uh, the sound of the piano uh, closer to the Malian music, to the Ngoni sound, or to Kora, the, the, the Malian harp. Uh, we started this track as a jam session based on, on the piano, and then Vu started uh, his guitar player in the Malian style, and uh, Suleiman Kane started playing Kalabash, which is a half uh, gore, half uh, pumpkin. That yeah, is, like, like, <laughs> like half pumpkin that is. Yossi, Yossi play the bass. Yes, Yossi Yossi Fine play the bass. Yossi Fine play, play the bass. Yossi Fine, one of the legendary bass players of Israel. I think that uh, the music that world music artists are creating, they are actually creating the soundtrack of the place that they are coming from. And it doesn't matter even if it's world music uh, artists that crossed over big time, even if it's Edith Piaf, the French amazing singer, you don't really have to understand French to follow her and to imagine you know, the streets of Paris. Or Mercedes Sosa from Argentina, which she became the voice of, of South America, or Yufal uh, Kature from Mali, and me, Dan Reichel, from Israel. The main difference is the roots of the places, how deep the roots of the place that we are coming from. While Malian music has been played for hundreds of years, a lot of griot and kora um, players and, and kalabash players, and it's just we over. Some everything here, you know. Yeah, it's just over and over, like uh, decades and, and generations that go deep to the roots, while Israel, on the other hand, 
is a very young new country that it's all about immigrants. For those of the listeners who are not familiar with the Israeli society, every 10 or 15 years there is new immigration that changes the faces of the Israeli society. People from Morocco, former USSR, from Ethiopia, from Yemen. So it's all about the, uh, still creating the melting pot. So this is the main difference of the places that we come from. I wonder uh, if there is one particular song where you two right. really kind of got into each other's groove, um, you know, as you say, kind of the I immigrant experience versus the, the really long roots of the Malian experience. I would, I would pick uh, Al-Qatao. Yeah. For me now, it will sound familiar like a Malian song, song. <laughs> uh, but, but it started as a Hebrew song uh, with an with a Israeli melody, and then I, sent, I gave it to, to Vieux, and he, he sang it with his own interpretation. Yeah, I, wrote... changed, I changed a little bit. Right. But the song for Al-Qatar is very important because this song speaks uh, what the union. Union. Y- union. Unity. Yeah, About union. unity. Yeah. I think it's very important, you know. So uh, uh, in Al-Qatao, you can hear uh, his interpretation for this, uh, for this melody mm-hmm. and beautiful lyrics that Vir Farka uh, wrote. So Al-Qatao. Vera, were you on the vocals there? Yeah, I'm on the vocal. uh, and what vocals. Vocals, uh, kalebash. Yeah. And what language were you speaking? Sorai. Sorai. Yeah, Sorai is a language from North Mali. Ah, so Eden, how did you understand what he was saying? Or maybe you don't have Just to. By <laughs> I tell him. <laughs> Just by, by translation, unfortunately, I speak ho- only Hebrew, and uh, the past four years I'm struggling with my English, I hope. Yeah, so. <laughs> but I speak uh, some language, you know, maybe six languages. Do you really? Yep. Sarai, Pearl, Bambara, Bozo, French. German, French, you know, a little bit English. You know, I know my English is not very, very quiet, but... <laughs> We're know. getting the message anyway, and thank goodness, yeah. as they say, music is the universal language. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, it sounds like it works so well, and it's so together. Was there any point where things weren't together, you know, where there was this dissonance either in your outlook or literally in the music? Uh, just when we go out to eat, he eats. Too much spicy and hot. No, 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 no. <laughs> These are the very, very specific points when things went yeah. wrong. It's, yeah. it's burning you. you know? <laughs> too, too hot. No, because because we did. You know, we can do. Sometimes we eat uh, the oriental food. Yeah, yeah, oriental food. You know, and yeah. next week you eat the African food. Yeah. yeah. You find a way to make it work, whatever it takes. Huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so nice to talk to you. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you so you much. So much. That's Vera Fakatore and Idan Rachel. The Touré Rachel Collective is in the middle of a North American tour right now. If you can't catch them near you, check out their music on our website. We've got the album streaming at theworld.org.
Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Lisa Mullins. Hope you have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.